Live from the New York Stock Exchange, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Deal or no deal? Those are the only Brexit options, according to a defiant Boris Johnson. Going all in, gambling giant Paddy Power's $12 billion bet with poker stars. And Zuck's bad luck, the Facebook CEO caught on tape saying an Elizabeth Warren presidency would suck. It's Wednesday, quick, let's make a move. Welcome once again to the show and to First Move. As I mentioned there, we've got big deals going on in the lucrative gambling space, but I have to say limited bets being placed on a global stock market rally today. Take a look at what we're seeing for U.S. futures right now. We are well and truly in the red. It follows yesterday's rough start to the final quarter of the year. Investors hit by the worst monthly reading for U.S. manufacturing survey data in over a decade. Has the long-talked-about global manufacturing session now firmly arrived in the United States? Well, it seems so, according to that data at least. All the majors here in the U.S. ending down 1% plus interest rate sensitive stocks like the financials, the banks were a real drag here too as bond yields tracked lower. Investors now believe there is a 60% chance of another Fed rate cut at the end of this month. But it's not just the United States, Europe. Take a look at that session too, well and truly feeling the pain just two days in fact after JP Morgan Chase said it's time to buy Eurozone stocks. We had a prominent German economic research firm lowering their growth forecast for this year and for next. They say the manufacturing slowdown is spreading to the services sector in Germany too. That, of course, is the real fear for the United States too. Manufacturing data has felt recessionary for months. We've talked about it plenty of times on this show, but the big concern is whether that impacts future hiring and then U.S. consumers decide to pull back. We already saw that sharp drop in consumer confidence last week. However, private sector job numbers today coming in line, even with revisions lower in the private uh, the previous month, even as the pace slows here. And we did see a slight uptick in manufacturing jobs in that reading too. I tell you what, non-farm payrolls on Friday is going to be pretty critical. Let's get to the drivers because uh, Christine Romans joins us now. Christine, great to have you with us. You and I have talked about this. The manufacturing data feels recessionary. Actually, it's not just that. It's agriculture here in the United States, but real fears being raised yesterday. Absolutely. And that September ISM number, I mean, it, it, it confirms what we saw in August. Remember, so you got two months in a row of a contraction in manufacturing, and that's what's troubling so many. You know, I keep looking at, at these, these slices of data and these surveys that say the worst since 2009, the weakest since 2009, and that starts to alarm me a little bit. The World Trade Organization, the WTO, also lowered its growth forecast for trade, global trade, to 1.2% uh, for the year. That is the weakest since 2009. You'll recall the recession was ending in June of 2009. That was a deep and painful period here. So there are concerns that what has started in manufacturing, in large part because of the president's trade war, uh, could be a recessionary problem for the broader economy. At least that's what economists are are starting to worry about because they're seeing in survey after survey these little signs um, of of 10 years of economic growth that, uh, that seem to be fizzling. Yeah, I mean, there's two economies here. And again, we've talked about this. It's less than a fifth 
of, of the growth of the United States, the economy of the United States here, manufacturing, the rest is the consumer. And it's what happens there, whether what we're seeing filters into job hirings or, or less of them even job losses perhaps going forward and that then filters into the consumer data because that's what we're asking here is the recession risk for the overall economy here real that's absolutely right and that jobs report tomorrow you're so right will be incredibly important to gauge here i'll be looking for the manufacturing number you're right that in today's private sector uh, payroll number there were i think 2000 uh, manufacturing job gains uh, in, in that report we'll look to see if growth wage uh, jobs growth is slowing overall beyond the manufacturing sector uh, in the in the government jobs report tomorrow. I suspect you could see more um, more census hiring. You know, every 10 years they do this big hiring push for census. So you could see, uh, and those are highly paid jobs, by the way. So you could see the jobs numbers buoyed tomorrow by that. But with so many, so many people watching the trade war and worrying that uh, we are really at an impasse with the Chinese right now, next meeting is October 10th. Can there be meaningful progress uh, or is this going to be a rough fourth quarter? That seems <laughs> to be the uh, million dollar question on Wall Street. Yeah. And very quickly, the president here saying it's the Federal Reserve's fault. They've not That's cut right. rates quicker. The strong dollar is a problem here, too. And, and all these are, you can argue, factors rates relatively high compared to other countries, the dollar strong relative to other currencies. But that's not what businesses are saying here, particularly smaller and medium size. That's right. They're saying trade war uncertainty is the key here. Yeah, they're not blaming interest rates. When you talk to yeah. people who are running uh, companies and who are the uh, treasurers of companies and purchasing managers and CEOs, they're not saying that Fed interest rate policy is their problem. They're saying a trade war is their problem. Did we just lose Christine there? Was she, um, she no, finished. Just, Sorry, that was, I was distracted. That's right. very naughty. That's all right. It's live TV. Yeah. <laughs> all right, Christine Romans, great job. Finish quickly. Naughty me. <laughs> Let's move on to our next driver and I'll pay attention on this one. Boris Johnson unveiling plans in his words to get Brexit done on October 31st. The British Prime Minister has been speaking at the Conservative Party conference. Here's a flavour. If we fail to get an agreement because of what is essentially a technical discussion on the exact nature of future customs checks. When that technology is improving the whole time, then let us be in no doubt conference of what the alternative is. The alternative is no deal. And that is not an outcome we want. It is not an outcome we seek at all. But let me tell you, my friends, it is an outcome for which we are ready. Remember, but the Brexit deadline, of course, October 31st. Nina Dos Santos is there, was listening to that speech. He's always pretty engaging and lively, I have to say, but it did feel rather Brexit deal light. What are they going to present today, Nina? Because he's already being accused of presenting a deal here that simply is not going to fly with the Europeans. Yeah, and what's more, Julia, is that this is the deal, apparently, according to Downing Street insiders, if you believe the latest rounds of briefings today, that will be the final deal that the EU is offered. So basically, the message is, this is it. It's all or nothing. Why is he doing that? Well, largely because if you're uh, speaking to the party faithful here over the last four days, as I have been in Manchester, it's, uh, he'd prefer to face the fire and fury of uh, some people who don't want a no deal in the UK or the fire and fury of Brussels rather than the certain political death of not actually delivering Brexit. 
albeit by October the 31st. So what is in this deal? Well, we don't really know at this point. Uh, earlier today, we were speaking to uh, senior cabinet member advisers who even um, intimated that their own ministers hadn't been fully briefed on the legal text that Brussels will see. That is how closely guarded a secret this is being uh, held. But uh, some of the details Perhaps not in the final draft, but an earlier draft were leaked to the Daily Telegraph, which is a newspaper Boris Johnson has written for for many, many years. Those include basically a deal that is a revised version of Theresa May's deal with the unpopular arrangement over the Irish border, the backstop scrapped, and instead replace it with a plan that would see... Ireland essentially, Northern Ireland, have two borders for about four years. That's what we're talking about here. Distinct area for Northern Ireland and a distinct uh, time-limited type of backstop arrangement until after the transition period when some kind of border technology will be up and ready. Julia? It's a challenge, isn't it? Nina, very quickly here again, there will be viewers looking at this situation and going, hang on a second, wasn't the law changed to prevent Boris Johnson taking the UK out of the EU on October 31st without a deal? We're mystified. Can you explain that for me quickly? I know that's a challenge. Right. Well, nobody really has an answer as to how he's going to uh, square this circle, if you like, um, apart from Boris Johnson in the next uh, 14, 15 days or so, because that's when he could have his hands bound if he doesn't manage to get a deal with Brussels. Remember, there's an EU summit coming up. Um, and if he hasn't managed to get one by the middle of the month, then according to what he's dubbed the Surrender Act, the Hillary Benn Act, to give it its full name, which was voted through by Parliament about three weeks or so ago, he would be forced to ask for an extension from the EU. But if the Prime Minister doesn't, this is a battle that many people have told me on the fringes of this Conservative Party conference will go back to the Supreme Court. So you can imagine more scenes like the ones we saw two weeks ago surrounding that battle over whether or not Parliament was well and truly prorogued or suspended. Boris Johnson lost that one in spectacular fashion. We could be setting the scene for another battle like that, Julia. Yeah, just ongoing uncertainty, unfortunately. Nina, great to have you with us. Nina Dos Santos there. All right, let's move on to our next driver. And taking a punt, Ireland's Paddy Power and Canada's Poker Stars to unite. The merger will create the world's largest online gambling empire. Anna Stewart is taking a look at this story for us. We've seen consolidation, a shift of consumers to things like online gambling, which has played a part here too. But there's also deregulation going on and potentially more in the United States which is also playing a part here too, I think. Talk us through it. Yeah, I see three key drivers to this deal, actually. What we have is, as you say, increasing regulation, legal challenges, taxation of the gambling industry mm. here in the UK, also actually in Australia. Um, we also have uh, the shift to online, as you said, and that involves not just... Um, shift online, but also uh, diversification of the product range. It's no longer just, you know, a flush from the GGs. We're talking about sports betting, poker, casino, fantasy sports, Julia, also a big one. And then perhaps the biggest is the legalization of sports gambling in the United States. And actually, this is what the CEO of Flutter, Peter Jackson, said on the call today. He said that the opening up of the U.S. sports betting market is perhaps the most exciting development in the industry since the advent of online betting. They've already been positioning themselves here. You'll see that the Stars Group, they had a recent deal with Fox Sports. Flutter's bought FanDuel. That is a U.S. fantasy sports business. Uh, and it is traditionally, of course, as you say, an industry that already is pretty high on the consolidation front. Of course, Flutter was created by uh, three Irish gambling companies, followed by Betfair in 2016. 
Yeah, I mean, it's quite fascinating. I was just digging around in the details. Cost synergies of $140 million a year look pretty nice here. And then I get to the regulatory part and the com mm. combination of these two companies, 40% of the gambling market in the UK after this deal. And I say, UK regulators are going to have a real problem with that. And this was so what everyone wants to know on the call, because this doesn't just need shareholder approval, and I'm sure you'll get it if you look at the share price today, but yes, it needs approval from the regulators of the UK, of Ireland, of Australia, the US, Canada, and the UK will be particularly difficult. 40% market shares likely to raise some eyebrows. Of course, I have 40 days for CMA, the regulator, here to make that call once this is all made official. But all the questions say, well, will they dispose of any assets? They're just keeping tight-lipped on that one. Very confident, of course, that this will get through. But I think this is a story that will come up again in the next few weeks. Julia? Yes, and we'll continue to track it. Anna Stewart, thank you so much for that. All right, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories that we're following around the world. And an update on the U.S. impeachment inquiry. A short time ago, during his visit to Italy, U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo spoke about the phone call between President Trump and Ukraine's leader in July. He confirmed he was on the call, which he said with, is consistent with American policy. Melissa Bell joins us now from Rome and was in that press conference. Melissa, what he didn't say, though, was whether that phone call set off any alarm bells while he was on it. Talk us through it. That's right, Julia. No uh, answer to the question of whether any red flags had been raised in his mind as he listened to Donald Trump press the Ukrainian uh, president in that phone call. But at last, a confirmation on the part of the Secretary of State himself that he had indeed been on the call. Now, that's important, Julia, because it goes to the heart of what the chairman of the House committees that are in charge of this impeachment inquiry are saying in a joint statement that they published last night, essentially accusing the Secretary of State of having, the, the, of having a conflict of interest in this impeachment inquiry because he had been on the call. This is what Mike Pompeo had to say. As for was I on the phone call, I was on the phone call. Uh, the phone call was in the context of now, I guess I've been the Secretary of State for uh, coming on a year and a half. Um, I know precisely what the American policy is with respect to Ukraine. It's been remarkably consistent, uh, and we will continue to try to drive those set of outcomes. He was also asked, uh, Julia, about those accusations on the part of the three committee chairman that he was essentially stonewalling, trying to get in the way of their inquiry and certainly not being as forthcoming as he should with the production of documents that he's been asked for and allowing for those depositions by the five current or previous uh, members, uh, officials from the State Department uh, to make those uh, statements uh, to uh, the committees. Now, he replied on that question that he would, of course, do his constitutional duty, but that he insisted on protecting officials from the State Department from uh, what he described and has described earlier this week as, of, as acts of intimidation. So not being very clear there about how far he intends to go with cooperating, in cooperating with that inquiry, but suggesting that perhaps he wouldn't seek to be standing in its way as clearly as he was earlier this week. But clearly the headline from this, Mike Pompeo admitting that he was on that call. He also went on to talk about the Inspector General tonight, or whether he was asked about whether he knew anything about what the Inspector General, who's asked to speak to Congressman later on today, would have to say to them. What were the documents that would be given to the Congressman? He would not be drawn on that question at all, Julia. Yeah. 
plenty of questions to come from Congress, I think, and only fueled by this presser. Melissa Bell in Rome there. Thank you so much for that. All right, to Istanbul now, where crowds are remembering slain Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi one year after his brutal murder. The vigil was held outside the Saudi consulate, where Khashoggi entered on October 2nd, 2018, never to be seen again. Turning to North Korea now, and just one day after Pyongyang agreed to resume stalled nuclear talks with the United States, the country fired a ballistic missile towards the Sea of Japan. This is the first time North Korea has launched a missile from an underwater platform since its talks with U.S. President Donald Trump. The 18-year-old protester who was shot by Hong Kong police is under arrest for assaulting an officer. A source tells CNN current and former students staged a sit-in at the protester's school on Wednesday to denounce the shooting. Authorities say Tuesday's arrest count for National Day has risen to 269. All right, so we're going to take a quick break here on that first move. But coming up, Hong Kong's latest retail sales data highlight the business cost of unrest. And in the meantime, it's full steam ahead in Chinese mainland as Tesla prepares for production. Stay with CNN. We're back after this. Welcome back to First Move. We're live at the New York Stock Exchange, counting down to the market open as always this morning. And we are looking at a week open for U.S. stocks following the weakness that we saw in yesterday's trading session too. A shaky start to Q4 trading. All the major averages off more than 1% yesterday. We're down around 3% from all-time highs for the Dow and the S&P. So in aggregate, always worth the context here. Safe havens also are benefiting from some of this weakness. We've got to bond yields here in the United States, the 10-year down in terms of rates for the fifth straight session. The dollar at its strongest levels for some two years, the dollar indexes versus a number of different other currencies. What about Japanese bond yields here too, ticking lower after a big jump higher yesterday after the central bank suggested they would buy less longer term bonds here too. So that having a global impact on bonds. There's a lot going on. That's the bottom line. To explain it all, Liz Young, Director of Market Strategy at BNY Mellon. Liz, fantastic to have you on the Great show. To be here. Let's start with the data. Sure. What we saw yesterday, the manufacturing survey data confirming a pretty much a lot of data that we've seen recently that at least as far as the manufacturing sector is concerned here, it's recessionary. Sure. But I think the important thing to remember here is that this is not new news. Yes. Right? The globe has really been in a manufacturing downturn for a while now, a lot of which was due to trade. So the fact that our manufacturing data is suffering a little bit, not entirely surprising. I'm not going to say that it's a positive thing, but it's not a surprise. It shouldn't really be a shock. So some analysts coming out in the last 24 hours going, the overall recession risk here for the U.S. economy is real. Obviously, we have to watch the, the consumer. Are people being alarmist even at this stage? I think at this point, when you get this late in the cycle, no matter what your opinion is, you can probably find the data to support it. So when you <laughs> okay. look at the U.S. economy and really remember what a recession is defined as, it's two consecutive quarters of negative growth, right? And the U.S. economy is still driven almost 70% by the consumer. Right. So if the consumer is strong and a lot of this positivity has been predicated on a strong labor market and a strong consumer, the consumer stays strong. Manufacturing is a concern, but the consumer piece is really the crux of the issue. You know, it's interesting. The president came out, we've mentioned it on the show already, blaming the strong dollar. He blamed a sluggish Federal Reserve. 
it's interesting that when you look at what small and medium-sized businesses are saying in this survey, they're pointing to what we keep saying is the big risk here, and that's trade, trade uncertainty at this stage. Right. Trade continues to be a risk. I think one of the bigger risks is that the market still sort of expects even a lightweight deal before the election next year. So if we don't get one, that could be somewhat of a negative catalyst. However, I don't think anybody really expects a grand resolution, us included, anytime in the near future. And when I say near future, I mean six to 12 months. You also point to something that I find quite interesting, a 30% chance that a market pullback here actually does create a recession in the United States. Talk us through right. that. So we could we could put ourselves into what's a self-fulfilling prophecy here. And, and I want to be clear, too, it's a 30% chance. We actually have a higher chance of there not being a recession. Yes. But that risk, that 30% <laughs> chance, is that we have some kind of sentiment shock. And right now with the market near all-time highs, and we continue to have some of these short-term intraday rallies and then little pullbacks, but what's really the risk here is that if we have a sentiment shock and selling pressure comes in and it reverberates through, that bleeds through into the real economy. That would probably cause a more short-lived and shallow recession, but it is definitely a risk. Is that because people are owning stocks and they lose money and therefore they get nervous? Or is it simply that you turn on the news, you see the red arrows, you see people talking about stock markets falling and it has a sentiment it's, impact? It's both of those issues. Yeah. So. Americans right now actually own more in equities than they did in real estate since before the crisis. So they're more exposed to equities than they have been for a long, long time. So that's a big piece of our wealth. And then the other piece is obviously this market has been driven mostly by macro factors, mostly by rhetoric, mostly by monetary policy support, and not as much by fundamentals. So if we get a surprise from those macro factors or from news pieces, that's what really breeds sensitivity into the market. So I feel my takeaway from what you're saying here is actually that you should still be invested in these markets and don't be concerned. JP Morgan said this week, time to buy Eurozone stocks. And most of those markets are actually having a shocker in aggregate today, I have to point out. Where would you be investing in Europe at this moment? What do you think of the United States? I would split Europe up. I don't know that I'd be ready to put fresh capital into European stocks right now. I'd like to wait through some of this fall nonsense that's going to happen. We still have to figure Brexit out. We have a leadership change that's going to happen at the ECB at the end of this month. So there's a lot of uncertainty there. And then obviously we have a question mark about Germany maybe falling into recession. So I'd like to see some fiscal stimulus come out of Europe before I'm ready to put fresh capital in. But we do find an interesting buying opportunity in UK equities, even with Brexit concerns, because a lot of that bad news has already been priced in. And remember, we are years after that vote. So this is not, again, this is not a new story. This is not new volatility, that Brexit piece. So I think you could start to dabble in UK equities. Interesting. You could need to be prepared for volatility, though, at least by the end of this month. Right. Right. Interesting one. The United States? Still positive on the U.S. We continue to be the best house in a bad neighborhood. And we see growth slowing and continuing to slow, but not turning negative. And if the Fed does cut one more time this year, which is what we're expecting, we have a chance to really turn that trend around. So 2020 could be a positive surprise. So the battle of the argues, the United States wins. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for that. Nothing ugly about this show. Director of Market Strategy at BNY Mellon there. All right, we're counting down to the market open. Coming up, we'll be talking about uh, some excitement comments from the Facebook CEO, Ouchies. That's coming up and plenty more discussion. And we'll be heading over to Hong Kong too for the latest there. Stay with us. We're back in two.
Welcome back to First Move and the opening bell this morning. U.S. stocks following what we've seen in the European session too, moving lower early on in the session today. As we mentioned, that manufacturing survey data, a real kicker for sentiment over the last 24 hours. The major averages beginning the session at one month lows, but remember just a couple of percentage points away from all time highs. We also had ADP payrolls data here in the United States ahead of non-farm payrolls on Friday, which we've already discussed will be pretty key here. The September numbers coming in pretty much in line, though some lower revisions in August. The point I'll pull out here is the manufacturing sector in the U.S. adding some 2,000 jobs. We'll take whatever we can get amid broader worries here about manufacturing. What about the oil sector, too, because that all ties in turning lower in the session today despite a surprise drop in U.S. inventory numbers. Again, I think it's the kicker of the greater demand fears outweighing supply fears here when you look at sentiment in that market today too. Okay, let's bring it back to stocks and the global movers. Stars Group trading higher in the session. The Canadian online gaming and betting company merging with Ireland's Flutter Entertainment. That's the parent company of Paddy Power. The type will create the world's biggest online gambling company, as we've discussed, just as the U.S. sports betting market really gets opening up here. The question will be, of course, regulators elsewhere in the world, as we've discussed on the show. TD Ameritrade, the American broker, announced Tuesday that its online operations will stop charging commissions on stocks and ETFs, exchange-traded funds. This follows a similar move by rival Charles Schwab. We'll discuss that in more detail later in the show. And for now, the final stop to watch, Lenar, the home builder's profits and revenues beating Wall Street's expectations. New orders rising 9% compared to a year earlier. That's a nice indication there on consumer confidence here too with big purchases. All right, Facebook, let's turn to them. The CEO, Mark Zuckerberg, recently told employees what he thinks an Elizabeth Warren presidency would mean for the company. Listen in. Like Elizabeth Warren, who thinks that the right answer is to break up the companies, um, you know, I mean, if she gets elected president, then I would, I would bet that we will have a legal challenge, and I would bet that we will win the legal challenge. Does that still suck for us? Yeah. I mean, I don't have to you know, have a major lawsuit against our own government. Ouch. The audio of that uh, meeting was published by The Verge. Meanwhile, Democratic presidential candidate Elizabeth Warren, who has been a strong critic of big tech, responded by saying what would really suck is if we don't fix a corrupt system that lets giant companies like Facebook engage in illegal anti-competitive practices. Facebook, of course, facing a number of antitrust probes. Donia Sullivan joins us on this story. I mean, he was quite pointed there, but you could argue he has a point. She's not the only person saying this, but she is the loudest voice, and she's got the corporate sector and big tech well and truly in her sights here. That's right, Julia. I mean, I think a lot of people who want to see these companies broken up um, and say Facebook is too big, remember they own Instagram and WhatsApp as well, say that, you know, this argument that Facebook, because it's a bigger company, has better resources to tackle election interference and provide better security. If you look at the track record over the company of the past few years, they don't particularly have a good one. They left a lot of election interference happen. We know there's been a lot of data breaches on the platform. And speaking to um, somebody from one of the, the smaller companies, a competitor, uh, you know, 
told me this morning that, you know, because these companies are so big, they don't actually have that competitive pressure to really, truly have to clean up their platform. Another interesting point that Zuckerberg made was that the companies um, work together better if they're all within the one umbrella organization in terms of, let's say, tackling foreign interference or trolls, things like that. But at the same time, Facebook is telling us and the U.S. government that they're working well with Twitter and Google on coordinating ahead of the 2020 election. And if you want to go back just just to a month ago, we learned that the Chinese government uh, were behind um, accounts that were interfering uh, with protests in Hong Kong, trying to um, trying to attack protesters there on online. That tip actually came from Twitter. So it was Twitter that told Facebook about that. And Twitter is obviously uh, a much smaller company. It's quite fascinating. The idea that breaking up these big tech companies will make election interference worse, I have to say, I think is a complete stretch. If they're working together as different companies, surely they will still work together. I'm not quite sure I, I believe that. But I do want to go back to um, what you and I concluded yesterday, Doni, as a result of uh, politicians being allowed to post things, say things on Facebook, pay for ads effectively that could contain fake news. The DNC has waded in here, the CEO at least, and uh, she's not happy. Talk us through that. That's right. So we know that Facebook has taken this massive effort to combat misinformation on its platform over the past three years. But Nick Clegg uh, last week confirmed that when it comes to politicians, when it comes to somebody like President Trump, they will not fact check his post. They will let him post freely um, and, and not in any way sort of downrank those posts. Uh, the Trump campaign has spent $20 million on Facebook ads since May of 2018, just in about a year and a half. So they're a big spender on Facebook. The DNC came out yesterday, Democratic National Committee, and they said, look, President Trump doesn't have a good um, track record with the truth, and his post should be fact-checked. Now, I think that goes back to a sort of bigger argument of, well, how much power do you really want these platforms to have? You know, Democrats want them to take responsibility, the likes of Facebook, but also we hear that they have too much power and, you know, would sort of censoring or in some way taking down the posts of the president of the United States uh, overstep that boundary. And uh, this morning we learned that uh, Kamala Harris, a Democratic presidential hopeful here, wrote to Jack Dorsey, the CEO of uh, Twitter yesterday, asking him to suspend uh, President Trump's account. We know President Trump has been tweeting about references to civil war um, and things like that over the weekend. And she pointed to how... Twitter had suspended um, other high-profile figures uh, like the conspiracy theorist Alex Jones. But I think Twitter, who's told us just in the past few minutes that they have received Harris's letter and intend to respond, I think they'll be very slow to want to, uh, <laughs> to suspend the account of the president of the United States. Yeah, so slow they'll walk backwards on that one. What we can't ignore here is that President Trump has been great for business. Tony, great to have you with us, uh, telling it like it is. Tony O'Sullivan, great. All right, let's uh, move on because we're going to take a quick break. Coming up, though, after this, the summer of discontent over in Hong Kong, a reflection of the price paid by the economy. All the details next. back to First Move. In Iraq, the Prime Minister has announced measures aimed at fighting joblessness. 
The move follows two days of violent protests there that left three dead and 230 injured after clashes with security forces. The protesters erupted in Baghdad and elsewhere on Tuesday over employment, government corruption and the lack of basic services. In the meantime, Hong Kong dealing with the aftermath of Tuesday's protests. It was the most violent in almost four months of demonstrations. Dozens were injured and police reported 269 arrests. The 18-year-old who was shot by Hong Kong police is among them, a source tells CNN. Current and a former student staged a sit-in at his school Wednesday to denounce the shooting. This, as the city counts the cost of the protests, new figures suggest the unrest is hitting the economy hard. Retail sales dropped some 23% in August to the worst level on record. For more, I'm joined by Tara Joseph. She's president of the American Chamber of Commerce in Hong Kong. Tara, always great to have you with us on the show. This data, I think, reflects what you've been saying some time, whether it's the retail sector, hotels, leisure, tourism, it's really bearing the brunt here of the ongoing protests. That's right. And when you look at those retail sales figures that you just mentioned, Julia, that's for August. We're now in the month of October. And as far as retail sales goes, things aren't getting any better. We're actually into a new normal when it comes to the local economy in Hong Kong. And to tell you the truth, it's starting to feel a bit surreal. You were showing pictures before of the scenes from yesterday. You could walk uh, into the middle of the central business district yesterday evening and hear a pin drop. All the shops were closed, shopping malls were shut, bars, restaurants, um, hotels are down to very low occupancy. And that's on days when there are protests. But today was a normal work day and the metro was running, people were going to work. Everything feels almost back to normal. And we're experiencing this constant flip-flop here that's become, as I said, the new normal. And it's a little bit strange. Yeah, we should also make the point as well, this is traditionally, this week is traditionally a great time for mainland tourists from China to come to Hong Kong. Even as you say, things go back to normal on, on days where we don't see protests. What about Chinese mainland tourists coming to Hong Kong? Are they staying away or are they still coming back when things calm down? The numbers right now are definitely down, and you can feel that in the streets when you walk around. The shops, especially the big luxury shops and hotels, are really feeling the pinch right now. And hopefully, if and when these protests end, uh, they'll come back. Uh, Hong Kong is a great place for people to come and visit and very close to mainland China. It's, it's one of the favorite places to come. The issue right now is when will it end? And that's what businesses are really trying to figure out. Do you hunker down, maybe close early, et cetera, and just wait for this to finish? Or at some point, are people going to have to lay off staff or think of other ways to keep going? So that's the issue. But I do want to bring up the fact that multinational companies and many of the major American companies that are here, they're not leaving. It's business as usual here. And I haven't heard of any real examples of companies saying, you know, we're out of Hong Kong. We're done now. Many people are waiting to see how this is going to play out and hoping that Hong Kong can come back and be the amazing city for business that it's always been. 
You know, it's interesting, Tara. We spoke to a Victor Gao of uh, the China National Association of International Studies yesterday, and he said there's a difference between peaceful protest and, and violent protest. From the business community members that you're speaking to, would they like to see the police act to prevent the violence here? Or are they sticking away from what is a very sensitive subject? Well, it is a sensitive subject, but as far as businesses go, and we have many businesses of chambers here, it's a very international city, nobody wants to see violence. Violence uh, is hurtful, it's harmful to society, people are worried about their own employees and the dangers they may face. So it's quite easy to say the violence is rough and people would much prefer to see peaceful protests. For the American Chamber, we really respect the right for people to have freedom of speech and to be able to express themselves peacefully. But uh, the difficulty with violence is that it gives people around the world, for one, a very harsh image of Hong Kong, and that's going to be hard to overcome in the long run. Yeah, it's good to get your perspective, though, is, as you point out, it's troubled, but trying to carry on despite the, uh, the challenges. Fantastic to have you with us, Tara. Tara Joseph, the president of the American Chamber of Commerce in Hong Kong there. Thank you for that. All right, troubles in Hong Kong, but one company not so worried about what's going on in the mainland. Tesla stepping on the gas in China. They're reportedly starting production this month. It's the first car manufacturing site outside the United States. Claire Sebastian is with me. Tesla faces broader challenges around the world and here in the United States, but not holding back in China. What do we know, Claire, on this? Yeah, Julia, the uh, report uh, from Reuters citing sources, sources familiar with the matter is that they are on track to start production at their China Gigafactory, uh, which, as you say, is the first one outside of the U.S. this month. That is uh, incredibly fast progress. I think we can show you some pictures from July of the Gigafactory itself. They only broke ground on this in January. So it's pretty stunning uh, how far they've come. And they, you know, are incredibly bullish on this. Uh, Elon Musk saying in their July uh, earnings call that it's going incredibly well. He visited China uh, in August. He said that the, the work of the China team uh, is mind-blowing. I think you can see from those pictures that he, he has a point there. Uh, but according to the Reuters report, there's still no guarantee that they will meet their end-of-year targets of at least a thousand cars a week out of this factory. There's still issues with the supply chain, whether or not they can get the local employees up to speed. But this is a huge part of Tesla's business. Don't forget, Julia, about a quarter of their revenue comes from China. And all reports suggest that they've actually been doing really well in the country uh, despite the slowing car market. Their revenues uh, were up in the first six months of this year 40% compared to the same period last year. So this is a big bet on China, but so far it looks like they're, they're betting in the right place. Yeah, doing well, even as the broader electric vehicle market there slows. Claire, what about other numbers from Tesla? Because we're going to get an update from them about the broader business today, too. What should we expect? Yeah, so production and delivery numbers are expected. The uh, third quarter, of course, ended on Monday. Now, we did have a, a letter from Elon Musk to, to staff that was published by Electric last week where he said they have a shot at meeting 100,000 deliveries this quarter. That would be the first time they've ever done that. It would beat the previous record uh, of 95,000 in the, in the previous quarter. But there are some challenges to this. Logistics uh, remains a big issue for Tesla. There's questions over whether they can get the vehicles into the right places to get them to customers. There's a federal tax 
tax break, uh, which which was cut by 50 percent in July. So straight in the, the start of this quarter, whether or not that will have impacted uh, orders. There's competition from new players on the market like Hyundai and Kia, who have who've all brought new electric cars uh, to the market. And of course, the big question for investors, Julia, is whether or not bigger delivery numbers can actually translate into a smaller potential loss in the third quarter. I think that uh, is something that many people will be asking. Yeah, critical question. I think investors have learned to just buckle up for these numbers, quite quite frankly. Uh, We shall see. Claire Sebastian, thank you so much for that. All right, up next, a war without winners. Broker TD Ameritrade matching Charles Schwab in slashing online brokerage fees. The question is, who can survive a race to the bottom? We'll discuss after this. Welcome back to First Move. Tuesday saw an all-out price war erupt in the brokerage industry. Charles Schwab fired the first shot, announcing it will slash to zero fees on some online trades. TD Ameritrade swiftly followed suit. Paula Monica joins us on this story. The problem for these players is they've got different levels of the proportion of their revenues attributable to this part of the business. It hurts some more than others here, Paul, and that played out in the market yesterday. Exactly, Julia. It hurts TD Ameritrade and E-Trade, who we've yet to hear from whether or not they're going to match this and go to zero commissions as well. They have a higher percentage of their revenue coming from commissions and these types of uh, trading accounts. So it does impact them more negatively even than Schwab, which is going to take a hit, of course, as well. All three companies, though, doing more advisory. They're going to probably, I would imagine, maybe do some more margin lending. They have to find other areas to supplement the revenue that they're going to be losing by basically going all Robin Hood and getting rid of these commissions. Oh, what a perfect link, because that is exactly what I was going to ask you. How much of the challenge that we're seeing here is customers simply getting more sensitive and looking around and going, you know, I don't want to pay big fees. And so we've got this race to the bottom here versus competition from some of the upstarts like Robin Hood that are saying, look, we'll let you do it. We'll let you do it on your phone and we'll let you do it cheaper. Exactly. I think the rise of Robin Hood, particularly with millennial investors, is one of the primary reasons why Schwab and TD Ameritrade made this decision. And also last week, Interactive Brokers, another smaller, lesser known uh, online discount brokerage company, also getting rid of commissions. So the key question I think that's going to be interesting, though, now is this is obviously something that validates Robin Hood. But there's also now all this competition. Robinhood, at last check, it was valued at about $7.6 billion as a private company. Given this new competition and the crazy amount of skepticism we now have for unicorns in general in light of WeWork, what's their valuation going to look like if they ever go public? I wonder if it's going to be as high as it is right now. When the disruptor gets disrupted back, that's what you're saying. Pretty much. This is obviously a no-brainer decision, I think, for Schwab and TD Ameritrade. And I would expect E-Trade to follow suit. And that means, all of a sudden, what does Robinhood have that really makes them stand out if everyone has zero commissions? Yeah. I wonder if we get below zero. Actually, pay people to come to your business. Yeah. It's a possibility. We'll see. Paula Monica, thank you so much for that. All right. Let me bring you up to speed with today's boardroom brief. Fitch Ratings downgraded WeWork's credit status to junk territory 
after the company abandoned plans to go public. The office-sharing company had hoped to raise at least $3 billion in the IPO. Fitch downgraded WeWork to a triple C-plus rating with a negative outlook. Vice Media in talks to acquire digital media company Refinery29. The two companies are hammering out a deal that would value the woman-focused brand at less than $500 million. The acquisition is part of Vice Media's strategy to compete for digital ad dollars. The CEO of Britain's largest retailer, Tesco, is stepping down. It comes after he declared the retailer's turnaround complete. Dave Lewis launched Tesco's recovery plan after an accounting scandal hit the company in 2014. And this just in, Walmart has announced that it's suspending sales of heartburn medication Zantac. It's the latest major retailer to pull the drug from shelves on concerns that it's been contaminated by low levels of cancer-causing chemical. Walmart is also pulling generic versions of Zantac from the shelves. Walgreens, Rite Aid and CVS have also stopped selling Zantac. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration says it's investigating the risk to patients. All right, that just about wraps it up for the show. Let me give you a look at what we're seeing for U.S. majors this market. As we mentioned, it was a tough start to the session. Where are we now? Well, it continues and we continue to see pressure for the majors. We'll continue to track the changes expresses up in a couple of hours time but for now you've been watching first move time to go make yours have a great wednesday quality sleep is essential and that's why the sleep number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs so you can choose what's right for you whenever you like need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature quiets their snores sleep number does that sleep better together J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.